What? What it do, bitches? <clears throat> Welcome to the show, everybody. I got a lot of stuff to talk to you about. Bernie Sanders is getting pelted with really stupid questions because corporate media is um, so bad at their job that it's embarrassing. Um, I'm going to go after CBS in just a minute. I'm going to open the show with that story. You guys are going to get a kick out of uh, the question that they ask. It shows you that like everybody who gets hired by these outlets, as a general rule, they're clueless. And they're just going to parrot the talking points that uh, very powerful and wealthy. So we got that. We got uh, Bet on My Stork got dunked on on Twitter after hitting everybody with a platitude sandwich. And, um, yeah, that, uh, that made my day. I love it when uh, these corporatists basically show us that they are the living embodiment, the living stereotype of what we thought they were. So we'll talk about that. Cory Booker did a town hall. We're going to break that down a little bit. I've done my best to like break down the various town halls whenever uh, Democratic candidates have them. Uh, we're going to be dunking on Sean Hannity today as well. And later on in the show... We have uh, a really scary story to talk to you about. Uh, It involves escalation between the U.S. and another nuclear power. And is Steve Bannon purposefully giving bad advice to Democrats? That's a really interesting conversation. Oh, and, and Twitter has no idea how to deal with Donald Trump since they know that he is often violating their terms of service. (laughs) So they came up with a non-solution solution, solution, and it is stunning. (laughs) So, all right, without further ado, let's get started. And we're going to lead with America's dad. Oh, by the way, uh, America's dad, Bernie Sanders, is trying to hit a million uh, donations. So um, I donated again to try to help him hit that number. Uh, and you guys should do the same. I did a recurring donation, and I hit him with some more because he's trying to hit that million number. Um, I'm trying to do everything I possibly can in my power to help him, to help him get elected. So, you know, if, if you are able to do it, you know, go drop a little donation off for America's dad because we, we need to show, we need to flex some muscle here. No story got me more pissed than um, when Bet on My Stork announced he got like, Bernie raised $6 million in one day, and Bet on My Stork is like, oh, yeah? Well, I got 6.1. And there's a lot of fuckery that goes into that, including having, he has, like, 100,000 fewer donors, but a higher average donation, because Bet on My Stork's uh, people are, like, older, more established liberals. And one of the biggest divides in the Democratic Party that nobody really talks about is the generational divide, where older Democrats actually like characters like Bet on My Stork and Kamala Harris. So, um, yeah, we need to do everything we can to get Dad over the finish line. So make a donation, call a friend, uh, ask your friend to make a donation, whatever you got to do. But let's get this thing done. Anyway, without, without further ado, which I already said, so apparently there was more ado, whatever that means, 
Uh, let's get started, and we'll do that with Bernie on CBS. So America's dad, Bernie Sanders, went on uh, some of the Sunday shows over the weekend. Here he's on CBS's Face the Nation. I think it's CBS. I'm not 100% sure. Don't quote me on that. Pretty sure. Um, and he was asked a question about health care. And to anybody who knows what they're talking about on this issue, even broadly, generally, like you don't need to know all the details. You don't need to know every like nook and cranny of Obamacare. Um, but if you just have a general idea of what's going on with health care in this country and what the basic things are, this is going to insult your intelligence. So look at the question. Look at the framing. And that's a, a, a trick a lot of people are unaware of. Oftentimes, the, the trick is in the framing of the question. You know, it's not like they just come, come out with it and, and state something that's wrong. It's they set it up in a way where if you criticize them, they get to turn around and say, no, I was just, I was just posing a question. I don't know why you're mad at me. I'm just, I'm just asking questions over here. So take a look, and then we'll discuss. I want to get to the issue of health care. Uh, the president this week said he wants the courts to strike down Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act. Um, but to be fair, Senator, you want to replace Obamacare too. You want to replace it with Medicare for All, this government-run, government-financed program. So if the courts strike right. down the ACA, does that ultimately help you? No. Well, look, uh, yes, Trump has an idea on health care. His idea is to throw 32 million Americans off of the health insurance they have, doing away with insurance for kids who are 26 years of age or younger who are on their parents' plan, <clears throat> doing away with the protections that the ACA has for pre-existing conditions, Margaret. That means if you have cancer, you have heart disease, you have diabetes. If Trump gets his way, the cost of health insurance to you will be so high that many people literally will not be able to afford it Thousands of people will literally die. That's Trump's health insurance plan. My plan's just a little bit different. I think we should join the rest of the industrialized world, guarantee health care to all people as a right, and the absurdity of the United States spending twice as much per capita on health care as any other nation, while our life expectancy is actually going down and our health care outcomes are worse than many other countries. And by the way, we pay by far the highest prices in the world for prescription drugs. Margaret, let me make a campaign promise to you, and you can repeat this, play this tape over if I'm elected president. And that is, if I am elected president, I'm going to cut prescription drug costs in this country by 50%. So Bernie did a wonderful job there, as he always does. Um, hammering away on policy substance, and it's always refreshing to hear that, especially in corporate media where we rarely, if ever, hear it. But that question, that's a smear question. There's no way around it. There's no way around it. I mean, what an absurd question. So uh, President Trump is trying to kill the Affordable Care Act, but if you really think about it, don't you kind of agree with that? Bernie Sanders voted for the Affordable Care Act. Why did he vote for it? 
Well, very simply, because he knew at that last minute when Obama had already given away the farm, there was no other option. It was either do nothing and have whatever it was at the time, 35 million people uh, have no health insurance, or cover millions more, protect pre-existing conditions, let, pa- let kids stay on their parents' rolls until they're 26, and all the other decent provisions of Obamacare. He knew. He knew that. So when he was presented with the option, like, oh, hey, which way are you going to go? Of course he chose, I would like the least shitty path, please. I'll take that. So to ask that question, you know, he's against uh, Obamacare. Aren't you against Obamacare, too? I mean, like you want to do Medicare for all. Yes, um, he wants to do Medicare for all and cover everybody in the country and cut the price in half. And Donald Trump and the Republicans want to kick about 30 million more people off of health insurance. Isn't that like kind of the same? I mean, seriously, if you think about it, you're both technically against the Affordable Care Act. I mean, again, that's a question that insults the the intelligence of people who know anything about this topic. I mean, I guess there are old, out-of-touch people who are watching this who don't know anything, and they're just like, oh, Bernie, Bernie's against Obamacare. Well, that means Bernie's against Obama, and Obama has a 60% approval rating, and us Democrats love Obama, therefore he's canceled. Like, this is all the, the subtext of what's going on here. But to try to conflate and compare Bernie's position to the position of the Republicans, there's a reason why he laughed at that. He laughed at that because that's beyond ridiculous. That's like saying, let me make an analogy here for you. That's like discussing politics with somebody and saying, well, listen, if you're a libertarian socialist, isn't that like kind of like being a libertarian? Because libertarian is in both terms. Yeah, except libertarian socialist is a left-wing philosophy, and libertarianism in the context of the United States is basically anarcho-capitalism, which is a right-wing philosophy. So, no, those things couldn't be more different. Or another example is like saying, um, well, isn't anarcho-capitalism and anarchism like basically the same thing? Because, you know, anarchism is in both of the terms. Well, no, one of those things is a left-wing philosophy, The other one is a far right-wing philosophy. So, like, again, this is just stupid gotcha-ism, where it doesn't even matter what his answer is there. The attempt is to try to to trick people into thinking, oh, my God, Bernie Sanders, see? Um, Horseshoe theory is correct, where, you know, you have the far left agreeing with the far right, and they agree and want to get rid of Obamacare. Sure, one of them wants to basically expand on Obamacare to go to Medicare for all to cover everybody, and the other one wants to kick millions of people off of their health insurance and go in the wrong direction. But, you know, it's basically the same thing. Don't you secretly like it, Bernie, that we're going to kick, or Trump's trying to kick millions of people off of their health insurance? You're asking Bernie Sanders if he agrees that it's a good thing to kick millions of people off their health insurance when every time the guy gives a speech or an interview, he says very clearly, it's crazy we don't have everybody in this country covered. We need to catch up to the rest of the industrialized world. So that is, listen, and the thing that's annoying me about this particular clip, if you can't tell I'm very mad about it, is that host is smart enough to know. That host is smart enough to know. She knows the deal. 
she knows that this is a bullshit question and totally bullshit framing. You think she doesn't know this? You think she doesn't understand the deep qualitative difference between what Bernie Sanders is for and what Donald Trump is for and the Republicans are for? Of course she gets it. She's being obtuse on purpose. This is her job. I'm going to make a prediction for everybody today, right here, right now. If Bernie Sanders happens to get the the nomination, and that is likely he is the favorite, I think a lot of centrist-minded Democrats are going to break for Donald Trump. And let me be clear, I don't mean average Joe voter centrist Democrats, because they will vote for Bernie. What I mean is the assholes in the D.C. elitist bubble. The assholes in the D.C. elitist bubble will break for Donald Trump over Bernie Sanders. And this isn't like a crazy prediction because we've already seen some evidence of it. There's a clip of Donnie Deutsch on Morning Joe from a couple weeks ago where he says, effectively, if Bernie gets the nomination, I'm going to have to vote for Trump. And uh, Joe Scarborough tried to put the brakes on that and help him save face. Said, no, 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 you didn't really mean that. Trump's a bigot and blah, blah, blah. I guarantee you, if Bernie Sanders gets the nomination, many well-known elitist Democrats will break for Donald Trump. And you will see the claws come out from the media in a way you've never seen it before. And this is even with the media already being incredibly hostile to Bernie Sanders. I can't tell you how many puff pieces I've seen about uh, Pete Booty Judge to this point. It's endless. It's endless. And we're going to get to a story about him later. Um, you're going to see why he's not all he's cracked up to be. Cracked up to be? Cracked out to be? Cracked out to be. He's cracked up to be. Um, he was talking about policy, and he basically said, like, policy, bro? I don't like being boxed in and stuff. And corporate media is, like, drooling on the, themselves. And I've seen, like, he, he knows how to speak Norwegian, and there were, you know, uh, reporters from Norway asking him questions, and he was answering in a different language, and then the media was like, ooh, he's so cultured. <laughs> and um, they're trying, like, what they're doing at this moment is similar to what happened in the 2016 primary on the Republican side. They're hedging their bets. So they're trying to say, okay, we need to back Kamala, we need to back Beto. Of course, Bet on My Stork has endless puff pieces, and they'll continue. Um, and now they see, okay, I think, I think Booty Judge will play ball. He'll play ball, so let's back him. By the way, he, uh, he's already, uh, originally he was talking about Medicare for All, and we need to change the debate, and the real compromise position is Medicare for All. Now Booty Judge is on the side of, well, no, Medicare for All who want it, Medicare for America. So, in other words, what that is, is just a public option. So he's starting the debate yet again by caving and conceding all the way to a centrist position, and then you're going to get nothing. But in his mind, he thinks, wonderful, a diet for bro policy, 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 schmolicy. What we need to do is, he really said this, we need to put, like, philosophy first in our values and stuff. That's the old trick of the corporate Democrats. Talk vague, generalized nonsense so you're not nailed down on policy. So when you don't do dick, you get to turn around and say, I never said I was going to do Medicare for all. I was just saying the values are good and I'm for good things and against bad things. So they're hedging their bets, man. But 
Bernie Sanders, the front runner in this race by a mile and a half. Biden in some polls is up, but those are oversampling old people. But nonetheless, he's up, but he hasn't officially announced yet, at least as of the recording of this video. But Bernie, the obvious front runner, not being treated as the obvious front runner. No positive pieces on him. But Booty Judge, who's in like sixth and is creeping up slowly, ever so slowly, nonstop puff pieces all over the place talking about how great he is. I'm so sick of this biased media. And guys, many of them don't even know they're biased. It's just that they are in a social circle that looks down on Bernie Sanders. They think, please, who are we kidding? There's no way this guy's going to get elected. But they're fundamentally misreading the political mood in the same way these same idiots did not see Donald Trump coming, but I did. They still don't get it. All these years later, they still don't get it. They don't understand. We're in a populist anti-corruption era. He's the obvious front runner. And instead of asking serious questions and diving into serious issues, what do they do? Frame questions like you just saw there. Aren't you secretly kind of like Trump because you're against Obamacare and he's against Obamacare? Right. Bernie's against Obamacare, even though he voted for it at the last minute because it was better than no change at all. But somehow he's against Obamacare. And it's kind of the same thing, even though Bernie wants everybody covered for a lower price. And Trump wants to kick millions of people off health insurance. This is embarrassing. What we're watching here is embarrassing. And what you just saw right there, make no mistake about it, is why this show exists and why this show is successful. It's not because, oh my God, Kyle's so good and he's such a genius. No, it's that I'm like meeting the bare minimum requirement for making sense. And these people are just often in la-la land, up their own ass, thinking that they're nailing it when they're just reflecting D.C. establishment bubble wisdom, which, of course, is the opposite of wisdom. It's incredibly stupid. Okay, next. All right, this one I will read for you. I will read for you, bitch. There's a lot of stuff to laugh at from Bet on My Stork. Let's do it. So, Beto O'Rourke, aka Bet on My Stork, got dunked on on Twitter. He was roasted to smithereens because um, he decided to become a living parody, a living caricature a living stereotype of the corporate Democrat who really doesn't give a shit about fixing the country and implementing the proper policies to help people. He just wants to, he's all about self-aggrandizement and narcissism, so he likes the sound of his own voice and the smell of his own farts, and he just tweeted word salad platitude, the likes of which maybe we've never seen before. And remember, Cory Booker's, you know, (laughs) in existence, and we've seen his stuff, and it's cringeworthy, but he may have topped even Cory Booker. So, um, take a look at this. Here's what he said. Let us be clear. We will not be defined by our fears or the smallness of our differences. We will instead be known by our ambitions, our aspirations, and the resolve, the creativity, the service and sacrifice by which we will have achieved them. Bro, what? What? The best part of that is he starts it with, Let us be clear. And he goes on to be not clear in any way. (laughs) 
where anybody who reads that by the end of it, they're like, mm, that didn't quite add up. Sounds like you're just doing a Deepak Chopra word generator or something. It's damn close to that, man. It's damn close to that. So let me show you this. You're going to love this. Um, this is the responses. Ben Norton says, Robert Francis O'Rourke loves hearing the sound of his voice using vacuous, flowery language that means nothing. This is a common tactic of Wall Street-funded neoliberal centrists who mush together a bunch of buzzwords instead of advancing actual policies. Randy says, this is what I've been saying. <laughs> the needle drop. My buddy uh, Anthony says, this Obama's Greatest Hits compilation is amazing. Uh, you must have learned about concrete language at some point in your Columbia career. This wannabe JFK drivel is only inspirational to people who can't enumerate concrete reasons they support you. Max Blumenthal says, I believe the children are our future. Teach them well and let them lead the way. Show them all the beauty they possess inside. Give them a sense of pride to make it easier. Let the children's laughter remind us how we used to be. Um, then we have uh, Progressive Blacksmith, another one of my buddies. I uh, just, hold on, let me rewind that. I just missed his thing. Progressive Blacksmith says, what does any of this mean? He sounds like a fortune cookie. <laughs> Somebody said, LOL, what? You literally said nothing. You're a joke. Samira Khan says, get in a time machine and go back to the 90s where you belong. Um, Clark Feels the Burn says, do you still think millennials need to work until they are 70 before they can collect Social Security? <laughs> Apparently he said that because Beto O'Rourke is a centrist goon. How did he resist the urge to jump on top of the table? <laughs> Come on, man. That's awesome. Oh, uh, Virgil, Texas says, Dave Chappelle, white guy voice. Uh, let me be clear. And then I love that picture of uh, it says centrist. And it's like the cover of a magazine. High fives and insurance company lobbyist. And then finally we have. The discourse lover says, let us be clear. We must hold our nerve and build a resolve to share in our common dreams. Lest our dreams be divided, we must never falter and allow the sacrifices of those who have sacrificed so much go unsacrificed for, but rather sacrifice for our common ambition to dream. Oh, I love Twitter. I love Twitter so much. You know, some people say Twitter's not real life. That's not totally true. Twitter is, I call it half real life. Because, yes, you do get an oversampling of, like, edgy, intelligent, young people on Twitter. Um, certainly in, like, left Twitter. But that, there is definitely a reflection of real sentiment there. And the sentiment is, this dude is an empty suit. He's as empty as it gets. And... Um, We've seen this before. You're, you are doing a cheap, knockoff, generic version of Obama. And here's who it's going to work on. Older Democrats. So I keep trying to remind everybody, this isn't going to be, we're not going to be able to skate through this, this primary and just have Bernie, you know, colossally crush. Um, there's going to be a little bit of a, you know, a nail biter at, at certain points. And I think that's largely because of the generational divide in the party. Young people, they think exactly what you just saw right there, the responses to bet on my store. That's what young people think. Like, this guy's an obvious joke. Older voters, I mean, listen, they're just not as policy-oriented. Keep it real. 
And to the extent that they are, they're a hell of a lot more centrist, a hell of a lot more right-wing than millennials. They're not true believers in a political revolution or social democracy being implemented. They're, at their core, many of them are incrementalists. So he is the, he is the candidate of the boomer Democrats. That's who Bet, Bet on My Sork is. That's who Kamala is as well. And um, we can only hope and push for the idea that people recognize that this guy is what your worst perception of him is, which is a narcissistic, self-aggrandizing, empty suit who loves to serve people platitude sandwiches. And remember, guys, because some people, would, they'd be like, you know, it's fucked up that you go after people for stuff like this. But it's not just that we're having fun with it. The reason why Bet on My Stork does this and Kamala and Cory Booker and the rest of them, the reason why they do this is they're trying to do a stand-in for actual policy commitments. That's, that's all this comes back to, is let me, let me say a lot of words to make people think I'm on their side, even though I'm not necessarily going to implement the policies that would help them and that they want. So that's why this is unacceptable. If you have a candidate who sprinkles in some platitudes every now and then, but they're actually super committed to doing the right policies, well, then that's fine, and we can look past it, and they probably wouldn't get, you know, ripped a new ass on Twitter. But when it's somebody like, you know, bet on my stork, everybody's like, wow, that's a stork, and I'm not going to bet on him. So uh, thank you to everybody who had fun with that. (laughs) I live for that stuff, man. I live for Twitter's snarkiness, taking these idiots and charlatans down a peg. Okay. All right, let's uh let's talk about one of those big stories that should be bigger news, but it's not. It's not, and you all know why. And you should all be upset by it. Here we go. So this is uh, pretty earth-shattering, what you're about to hear. This needs to get more coverage. Um, If you care about the future of humanity, this is the the story of the month, if not the year. And we should act, because this is scary. So CNBC is going to talk about a development when it comes to nuclear technology, nuclear weapons, and what the U.S. is currently engaged in. And this is not good. This is a story, as you say, that if true could have potentially explosive consequences, not just for the Trump administration, of course, but also for their relationship with Riyadh. Now, what we know so far, according to a report out of Reuters, is that they've seen documents uh, that U.S. Secretary of Energy Rick Perry has secretly approved six authorizations by companies to sell nuclear power technology and assistance to Saudi Arabia. Now, this, of course, is without congressional approval. We've heard again and again from both sides of the aisle a lot of concerns raised about the potential there for Saudi Arabia to move toward nuclear energy but really to move towards potentially a nuclear weapon. Of course, all of this comes back uh, to the idea that we heard touted by Saudi Arabia's Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince there, just a year or so ago when he said that if they felt that Iran was moving toward a nuclear weapon, that Saudi Arabia should be able to develop one too. That, of course, all goes back to a bigger conversation about 
plans for nuclear energy. Now, of course, Saudi Arabia, their vision 2030 to diversify the economy, essentially what they want to do there is spend upwards of $80 billion to develop several nuclear reactors in the country. Of course, this all goes down to whether or not they'll use U.S. technology to get that done, and of course, whether or not they'll be willing to sign the 123 agreement, which would essentially say that they're not going to be enriching uranium and moving toward any kind of nuclear weapon. And so far, from what we've heard from the Saudi side, they don't really have any interest in doing that. And from the U.S. side, there's so many concerns about nuclear proliferation in the region. So a lot of attention you can expect on this story in the coming days, Brian. Yeah, in fact, the uh, GAO, the General Accounting Office of the U.S. government, has really said they're starting to investigate a little bit whether or not the proper legal steps in the Trump administration were followed in order to get this deal done. So this is a deal that is going to be scrutinized here. What's the commentary there? Well, it's interesting because I had the chance to catch up about a month or so ago at the Munich Security Conference with the Deputy Secretary of Energy from the United States. I asked him just that, are you going to allow Saudi Arabia to bypass 123? Because remember, here in the United Arab Emirates, they have an agreement with the United States whereby they're doing just nuclear energy. They're not obviously moving toward a nuclear weapon. And he told me, absolutely not. Saudi Arabia will have to comply here. So it's very, very interesting that you're hearing these mixed messages now, whereby potentially U.S. Secretary of Energy, Rick Perry, has done this secretly. And that's certainly going to raise a lot of eyebrows on Capitol Hill, Brian. Are you kidding me? So Energy Secretary Rick Perry has approved six secret authorizations by companies to sell nuclear power technology and assistance to Saudi Arabia. Too much to even say about this. First of all, what did you get out of this? And this, again, secret. This is all in secret. This is all secret. What did you get out of this? Is it fair to call this collusion? I think so. I think so. You're colluding with the Saudi government to bypass Congress and give them nuclear technology? Are you kidding me? And how can you, how could you do that? Oh, we're just going to bypass Congress. Congress, Mongress, who cares? Uh, us, the glorious executive branch, has henceforth declared we shall give nuclear technology to the world's most terroristic, authoritarian, fundamentalist regime. Our friends, the Saudis. Are you kidding me? So, listen, they're secret meetings. Make no mistake about it. Is the Trump administration cool with this? Maybe largely because they've gotten tremendous favors from the Saudi government. That certainly plays a role. We discussed the story about how the Saudi government has funneled hundreds of millions of dollars to Donald Trump's pocket because they pay for, they overpay for themselves to stay at Trump's D.C. hotel, but then also They've sent, like, U.S. veterans there for lobbying efforts, and they overpay to keep the U.S. veterans there. So something like $300, $400 million funneled uh, by the Saudis to Donald Trump's pocket through, the, through his hotel in Washington, D.C., which, by the way, is a clear violation of the Emoluments Clause of the Constitution, which says uh, a U.S. politician or, or president cannot accept money from a foreign government. Why? Because then you're likely to have a conflict of interest and to represent the special interest as opposed to the American people. And in this case, it's the Saudi government. And would you look at that? After they give them so much money, 
he says, oh, you're, are you committing a genocide in, in Yemen with our assistance and with our weapons? Fine by me, dog. And, oh, yeah, by the way, keep your seat on the UN Human Rights Panel. What? What? You're committing a genocide, but, yeah, you, you should sit on the UN Human Rights Panel and judge others. Are you kidding me? What a joke this is. So there's massive corruption involved here, a violation of the Emoluments Clause, and now you have secret meetings between the Trump administration and Saudi Arabia where they're giving them nuclear technology. And this leads to the final point, because again, onus on the corruption, onus on the violation of emoluments, onus on collusion, colluding with the foreign government for a nefarious purpose to bypass Congress, which you're not even allowed to do. But ultimately, I thought that the Republicans, I thought you guys were the party that's against radical Islam. I thought you're against um, Salafism, Wahhabism, Sunni fundamentalism. I thought you were against it. But you are the ones who are spearheading an effort to potentially give Saudi Arabia nuclear weapons? Are you kidding me? And they have the nerve to turn, and I guarantee you this will be their reaction when this is discussed more and outed more, if it is at all, because media seems like it's barely talking about it. They'll be like, well, you know, problem is, what if Iran gets a nuclear weapon? Well, then, of course, we've got to let Saudi Arabia have nuclear weapons because they're a geopolitical foe. So, I mean, what are you going to do? They're our ally. Iran's not our ally. They create a nuclear, they're, they might get a nuclear weapon. So it's really defensive purposes, if anything else. But, hey, dipshits, you pulled out of the Iran nuclear agreement, which guaranteed that they weren't going to create a nuke. And, and we knew that because of the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, which routinely does the inspections, and they came back every time, over a dozen times, and they said they're following the agreement to a T. So they were following it. You pulled out of it, greatly destabilizing the region, and now you're going to turn around and give authorization for Saudi Arabia to get nuclear technology? One of the worst governments on the planet, that's not an exaggeration. They're literally committing a genocide in Yemen. And they're incredibly repressive at home. And you're going to give them nuclear technology. Saudi freaking Arabia. And then the scariest part is, we, it wasn't even that long ago we saw the Arab Spring, where there were all these giant uprisings, and there were all these governments that were overthrown. And what, you think Saudi Arabia is fundamentally immune to something like that ever happening? What happens if a legit, legit uh, Salafist, group gets their hands on those weapons. What happens? What happens in a situation like that? What happens if there's a a, a violent overthrowing of the Saudi government and you have ultra-fundamentalist aspects, who, by the way, there are still fundamentalist aspects in the government as they exist right now. What happens when one of them gets their hands on those weapons? Is that what you want? Is that what you want? The funny thing is, I actually believe that Iran, which is a Shia theocracy, which is brutal and terrible and fundamentalist in its own right. I actually believe they are a lot more uh, dedicated to rational self-interest. Why do I say that? Because they've been like that already every step of the way. Every step of the way. So even though they have horrible elements over there, I actually think to the extent that they would ever get a weapon or want a, a nuclear weapon, it really would be for deterrence. Because the, you know, the biggest overthrower of governments in the world is constantly threatening to do exactly that to them. Never mind Israel always threatening to do the same thing. 
When it comes to Saudi Arabia, no. Perhaps the government now, you wouldn't have to worry about it. But again, all it takes is one, one uh, you know, overthrowing of the government, one violent revolution. And historically, governments are not, especially authoritarian governments, are not stable. So you want to roll the dice with that? The same people who cry about how they're against radical Islamic terrorism are now going to give a fundamentalist Sunni extremist government, a, a theocracy who brutally repress women, still stone people for being gay, still stone people for sorcery and witchcraft and adultery and drug smuggling. Or excuse me, they don't stone people. That's um, the Taliban in Afghanistan. They behead people in the public square. You're going to give that government nuclear technology. Don't you ever, ever claim ever again to be tough on terrorism. If you really were, the first thing you would do is no more weapons to Saudi Arabia. Because, by the way, weapons from Saudi Arabia oftentimes get funneled to literal jihadist groups in Syria. Uh, And in Yemen, al-Qaeda on the ground in Yemen. They're the Sunni militias on the ground fighting the Shia Houthis. So this is the government that you're going to, God, they're so stupid. They're so stupid, but really, I don't know which is worse, the corruption or the stupidity. I, re- I have no idea which one is worse, but they're all bad. We can agree they're all bad, but this is, this is unforgivable. This is corruption. This is a violation of the Emoluments Clause of the Constitution. I'm sure there is a quid pro quo somewhere. It's just a matter of if we find it or not. This is collusion, and most importantly, this is um, propping up an insanely vicious and primitive and savage theocratic fundamentalist government when these are the same people who claim to be against radical Islam as they do everything they can to spread its influence as much as humanly possible. Holy shit. This is reckless. I mean, you're, really, you're going to give Saudi Arabia nuclear technology? That's like the last people I would give nuclear technology to. Oh, my God. Money talks, man. Money talks. And we need to figure out, what exactly is Rick Perry going to get for this when he's no longer, when he's no longer um, in the Trump administration? What exactly is Trump going to get for this? He's already getting hundreds of thousands of dollars through his hotel from the Saudis. But what, exa- what else are they going to get for this? There has to be quid pro quos, man, where afterwards they get, you know, oh, you get paid a couple million bucks a year to be part of the Saudi lobby, and you lobby on Capitol Hill for Saudi Arabia. And really what that means is we'll pay you a couple million dollars a year to do nothing. There's got to be quid pro quos somewhere, man. Because this is, even for these guys, I would expect them to be like, Given nuclear weapons to Saudi Arabia, the potential for nuclear weapons, nuclear technology to Saudi Arabia, even I draw the line at that one. But they're not. They're doing it, and they're doing it in secret and covering it up. This is insane. Everybody should be screaming about this. And again, barely a blip on the radar. I'm sure this is the first time you're hearing about it. The only, I only saw it on this, in this little CNBC clip. That's it. I didn't see it anywhere else. Yet again, this goes to show you this is why this show exists. All the stories that should be big and should be, you know, breaking news and and a huge issue, those are the ones that the media is like, and vice versa. All the ones that are non-stories are the ones that they'll pump up relentlessly and make it seem like it's the biggest news of the day. You have a bunch of charlatans and idiots running the news media because this should be 
just everybody's hair should be on fire listening to this. Okay. Next. Let's go to Cory Booker. Let's go to Cory Booker. So Cory Booker had a town hall a few days ago. I want to take a look at some of the clips with you. First, let's go to, um, this is actually the first question he got, and I want to see the difficulty of the question he's given compared to the other candidates who have had town halls. You're going to notice a little difference here. Check it out. Tawanya Herbert, a healthcare professional from Columbia. She's a supporter of yours. Tawanya, there she is. Good evening. Good evening, Tawanya. So, even though you have proposed legislation and policies that positively impact our country, moving forward, many people just want to defeat Trump in 2020 and are critical of your approach for campaigning on love and unity. What do you say to those people? I am so grateful for this question because I do hear it from time to time, even from some of my friends. But let's just first say that we all agree about the urgency of this moment to beat Donald Trump. Now, you just can applaud that, definitely. And I'm uniquely qualified. I've gone up against uh, tight bullies in my, through my New Jersey politics. In fact, I don't think anybody in this race has been through the kind of tough politics I've been through. There's even a documentary about it called Street Fight. But we win this election not by showing the, the worst of who we are, but by the best of who we are. You see, Donald Trump wants us to fight him on his terms. To me, uh, that is not a recipe, only a recipe for losing the election. It's a recipe for losing the ability to move this country forward. We have to understand that what Americans want is not to know what we're against. They want to know what we're for. And in this moral moment in this country where we're seeing moral vandalism from the highest office in the land, somebody who is Twitter trash-talking and trolling, this is a time that we as Democrats have an opportunity not to go around saying, hey, we're going to beat Republicans, but to stand up with the ideal of uniting Americans. I believe very firmly that you can't lead the people if you don't love the people, all of the people. And we need that energy. We need that leadership. The only way to freak hate is not bringing more hate. It's by bringing love and hope and uniting people to solve the persistent injustices in our country. I'm going to do that, and that's actually how we are going to win. You are going to get so thoroughly destroyed that it'll be embarrassing. And I'm not trying to say that as like a gotcha to Cory Booker. I'm trying to say that as like, this is my analysis of how it's going to unfold. And you can, uh, you know, test me when it's over. Let me know if I'm right or wrong. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see how far you go with that mentality. My takeaway from this is um, Republicans are playing rugby. Democrats are playing pogs. I mean, you go look at any Republican rally, any Trump rally, you know, uh, he is breaking spinal cords over his knee. That's what he's doing. He's going after everybody. He's calling them fake news. Um, he's calling them obstructionist. He's 
uh, he's going on his policies. He talks about them all the time. Now, we hate his policies, rightfully so, but nonstop talking about the wall um, and talking about we got to get rid of Obamacare and, and all this stuff. So, and, and what does Cory Booker do? He, he comes out and he's like, well, we need to run on um, uniting Americans and campaigning on love, love and unity. Any candidate who doesn't understand that in 2020 you have to run on an anti-corruption message, a pro-populist message, and an elite versus everybody else narrative is going to get absolutely obliterated, and that's what's going to happen. Cory Booker is borrowing too much from the 1990s with his, with his approach here. He thinks that this happy-go-lucky, like, who, me? I'm just a good person who cares about making this country better by everybody coming together and having a kumbaya moment. That's not going to work, dude. People are mad, and they're rightfully mad. And also, you're using an old playbook, and Trump proved that this playbook is dead and gone, man. Totally dead and gone. I mean, Hillary Clinton ran on the playbook to a T, and she lost to a joke of a human being reality show buffoon. Um, now, also, look at the question. Compare this to the questions that Tulsi got. Compare this to the question that Bernie Sanders got. I mean, they were asked, like, Tulsi was like, why do you, uh, why do you love dictators? <laughs> Bernie was asked questions. Tulsi and Bernie, there were Democratic operatives in the audience who they didn't even disclose were Democratic operatives. And they asked them these smear questions. Um, there's one thing that Booker said in there that's true, but he interprets it wrongly. So he says, well, we have to run on what we're for. And this isn't just about beating Donald Trump. Well, yes, but that's the thing is you don't do that. <laughs> you don't run on what you're for. You uh, run on platitudes and cliches, kind of like bet on my stork and uh, some of the other candidates, and people are going to see through it. So they don't get it. Cory Booker fundamentally doesn't get it, that this is a different political era than the 1990s, and people aren't playing around anymore. Nobody has time for your kumbaya nonsense. And what, we're, what we need desperately is a transformational, revolutionary left presidency that is willing to take the Democratic Party back to their FDR roots, where they kind of openly and clearly argue for social democracy, and they openly shun all the special interests pulling them in the wrong direction, like Wall Street, like the military-industrial complex. And if you're willing to split the difference and you're willing to do another Bill Clinton-style candidacy, again, you're going to be left in the dust. So... I honestly don't even think it matters how many puff pieces CNN gives you, how many easy questions they give you, as Cory Booker had in this town hall. Um, it's not going to matter because it ain't going to work, and you are going to get eaten alive by Donald Trump. He said, oh, Trump wants us to fight him on his terms. That's true. And what you can't do is um, go into the gutter with him. But what you can do is be just as aggressive, be just as much on the offense, but stick to policy and hammer him over the head with policy, and then you win. But what Corey's trying to do is just run as simply the anti-Trump, which, again, is not going to work because Trump's over there, you know, taking out your kneecap with a hammer, and you're begging him, sir, please, sir, can we be reasonable about this? Let's all unite and love each other. That ain't going to work, dude. 
That's not going to work. You can't simply run as, I'm the anti-Trump. It has to be, no, I'm going to be equally as on the offense, equally as aggressive. I'm going to call you ridiculous because you are that. But I'm also going to stick to policy and show everybody I'm serious and you're a clown who knows nothing about policy. So I guarantee you Cory Booker is going to fade away. And don't say we didn't warn you. Don't say we didn't course correct in terms of the kind of strategy you should use. Um, But... He won't listen. None of these corporatists will listen because they're too married to the sound of their own voice and they have a bunch of idiot overpaid strategists who don't know anything, but they think they do. Okay, now let me do one more with Cory Booker, then we'll take our first break. Let's Talk about reparations. So Cory Booker was asked a question about reparations in his town hall with CNN. Let's take a look at his answer. Reparations. Would you be in favor for, of direct monetary payments to black Americans who are descendants of slaves? Can I, can I tell you why I'm frustrated uh, and disappointed by this reparations conversation? It's because it's being reduced to just a, a box to check on a presidential list, when this is so much more of a serious conversation. So do I, do I, do I support uh, uh, legislation that is race conscious about balance in the economic scales. Not only do I support it, but I, I have legislation that actually doesn't. In fact, I've got the only legislation I think in the entire Congress that Columbia University says would virtually eliminate the racial wealth gap in our country. It's something called baby bonds, which means that every child born in America would get a bond when they're birthed. $2,000 placed in it, and during the time, every year of their life, depending on their family's income, they would have more money placed in it. The lowest income Americans, by the time they reach 18 years old, would have upwards of $50,000 real wealth, a stake in our economy, to invest in going to school or education, starting a business, buying a home. And so the ideas I'm bringing to the table with very much conscious towards closing racial gaps is there, but let me go further than that, and this is one of the things that frustrates me about this conversation. Since slavery in this country, our our nation's original sin, we have had overt policies fueled by white supremacy and racism that have been oppressing African Americans economically, but it didn't stop with slavery. Reconstruction period, it went even beyond the Reconstruction period to the Jim Crow period. Many of the best ideas we've had in America that have ushered millions of Americans into the middle class, blacks were systematically excluded from the GI Bill to, to even Social Security was written to try to exclude the professions that African Americans were in. Even in my lifetime, you had redlining, uh, you had mortgage loan problems. In fact, my family, to move into New Jersey from Washington, D.C., had to get a white family to pose as them in order to buy the house I grew up in. And so what I'm saying to you is, and my frustration is, is if we don't have a way of addressing head-on in this country the persistence of racism, the persistence of white supremacy, and implicit racial bias. And you know it even in the media. How do we talk about black protesters? They're thugs. You see it in our politics. Willie Horton and welfare queens, these tired tropes that still show up and then allow things to happen like mass incarceration, which has 
implicit racial bias in our criminal justice system that hurts blacks. So I want to make sure that we are dealing with the problem. That's why I support H.R. 40, which is a bill in the House uh, that would bring together the best minds in America to deal with this issue, not only trying to right economic scales from past harms, yeah. but to make sure we are a country that creates a more beloved community. And it's a complicated question. Exactly. <laughs> what are reparations? But I think that's right the conversation. Okay, so just to be clear, that little like jump cut there at the end was not me. That was the video from um, that I found on YouTube of his town hall, and there was a little like weird jump cut. I think because whatever the stream that the person was watching on was buffering, but that's neither here nor there. Um, he is not for reparations. That's not reparations. What he described that policy, it's perfectly fine policy. It's a lovely policy. In fact, I support that policy. Sounds like a great idea, baby bonds. Yeah, why not? It sounds great. Sounds like a wonderful idea. But that is in no way, shape, or form reparations. Now, did you notice the reaction from Don Lemon, and did you notice the non-reaction from the media that was not the case with Bernie Sanders? Don Lemon at the end says, yeah, then that's a good question. Is like, what exactly are reparations? Wait, that's exactly what Bernie Sanders said. When Bernie Sanders says, do you support reparations? He says... Well, what exactly do you mean by reparations? And, you know, when people say, oh, direct check, Bernie's honest and upfront. He's like, no, I don't support a direct check, but I do support the bill that Cory Booker just brought up, H.R. 40. But notice, Booker will not get countless headlines in the mainstream media saying, Cory Booker weak on racial issues, weak on reparations, doesn't support reparations. But Bernie Sanders did. That was always our contention and, and what we were mad about on this show. If you want to critique Bernie Sanders on any policy, by all means, go right ahead. Be my guest. But you better hold everybody to a consistent standard. And people don't do that. People don't do that at all. Somehow, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, Elizabeth Warren, and a bunch of the other candidates, all they have to do is head fakes on the issue of um, reparations, and everybody goes, oh, cool, nothing to see there. But Bernie Sanders is the only one who's really upfront and honest, and his position is basically the same as the other Democratic candidates, and yet he's attacked for not believing in reparations. You see the double standard here? You see why people are angry? You see why people are upset? So again, if you're somebody who supports reparations, okay, but just hold every, every candidate to the same standard and call bullshit where you see it, because what he just argued for is not reparations. The closest he got is, oh, H.R. 40, which I think is a committee to study reparations or something, which Bernie also supports. So just let's be clear about that. And um, I like how – I like his pivot at the beginning because it was such an obvious politician pivot. It was actually a decent question for once on CNN against a corporate Democrat where Don Lemon said, uh, oh, do you support a direct uh, monetary payment, like a direct check to the descendants of slaves? And he's like, you, listen, you want, you want me to tell you why I'm frustrated with this conversation? Actually, no, I want you to say yes or no to that, <laughs> to that part. And then you can say whatever you want to say. But first and foremost, say yes or no to that first part. Um, do you support direct monetary payments to descendants of slaves? Start with either yes or no and then go. And what does he do? Not that. You want me to tell you why I'm frustrated with this conversation? It's reduced to a box to check, bro. It's reduced to a box to check. Okay, but do you support a direct monetary payment or do you not support it? If he was being honest, he would have had to say no. 
And then he could have went on to describe the rest of it and say, but I support baby bonds, which would help close the racial gap. And I support um, H.R. 40, which is a committee to study reparations. I support all these things. But in terms of the specific question, no, I do not support direct monetary payments. But he didn't say that. And, but I do have news for Cory Booker. If he didn't say that, he still wouldn't have gotten negative press coverage. If he said, if he said directly to the question, no, I don't support direct uh, monetary payments, he still wouldn't have gotten half the negative press that Bernie Sanders got when Bernie Sanders effectively gave the same answer and a more honest answer than every other Democratic candidate. So just, just understand that's what people were upset about. People are upset at the, at the uh, different standards for the different candidates. That's what people are mad about. Um, again, you could criticize Bernie. If he doesn't meet your policy standards, fair enough, criticize him on that. But you have to be consistent and you have to be objective and you have to hold everybody to the same standard. And what we've seen in the media, at least, is every other candidate gets a pass, but the old white dude does not get a pass. And that's disgraceful. And also, by the way, if we really all wanted to play the identity politics game, it's easy to say, oh, maybe the media is biased against Bernie Sanders because he's Jewish. Is the media anti-Semitic? That's ridiculous, right? I agree, that's ridiculous. So let's just drop the entire identity politics game when it comes to this stuff. And let's just focus on policy and policy alone. Um, but there you have it. Cory Booker dances around the question and is going to 100% get away with it in the fallout. There will be no screaming headlines talking about how he doesn't support reparations, even though there were a million of those for Bernie. Okay. Let's take a break. When we come back, I got one more on Booker. He was asked about his position on health care. His answer was not great. And then we're going to make fun of Sean Hannity, which is always, always, always fun.
a bitch. All right, we're back, y'all. We are back. And I got one more on Young Bory Cooker. All right, so Medicare for all. This is the topic. Let us proceed. So Cory Booker was asked about his position on health care. Now, he's going to start out pretty solid here, but then he drives the car into a ditch. After 43 years of working as a nurse, I now find that I'm disabled. My medications and my physician costs are astronomical. I have Medicare and private insurance, but they're expensive, and they still don't cover my costs. The current administration thinks that the free market is the best route for people. Just put some money aside, they say, and it'll cover my medical expenses. Problem is, where's that money coming from? Can you explain to us, sir, how you're going to help folks like me who have worked and paid into the system with how are we going to do this? Thank you, Thank you for that question. Thank you. Yes. And, and your struggle some days, I'm sure, like a lot of Americans, you feel alone in it, but this is one of those things. All across our country, there are people struggling with the same issues with you. In a system that is the most expensive system on the planet Earth, we spend about 18 to 20 percent of our GDP on health care, and we still have folks that are struggling just to get by because our system, all that money we're spending doesn't go to patient care, doesn't go to support folks like you. This is a broken system, and we must fix it. So if I'm your president, I'm going to make sure that we deal with this. Now, the ideal in our country is that everyone should have access to health care. Health care is an American right. And the current system is definitely wrong. I believe the best way to get there is by, by having Medicare for all. But anybody who says that in politics, they, they need to get to some explaining, because that's an ideal that we have to show a pathway to get there to practical things that aren't going to make people's situations worse, but help it get better. So here's some things that we can do in the first year, should I be your president. Number one, those drugs and those expenses that you're talking about, that is outrageous. Too many Americans put aside life-saving drugs because they can't afford them. We can drive those prices down doing common sense things that even Republicans talk about, but we're not getting done. Those are things like using Medicare's bargaining power to drive down costs. That means allowing, on a bill that I wrote with Senator Sanders and Senator Casey, allowing imports uh, from other countries safely. And I'll tell you what, we're going to drive down drug prices by doing what other countries do. They simply say that if you're going to have a drug in their country and raise the price in their country higher than others, there are going to be penalties for that. Well, if I'm President of the United States and you raise your drug prices higher than in other countries, we're going to have a definite penalty. We're going to take away your patent and let generics come in and undercut those prices. And I want to give you one more example. I want to give you one more example and, and something, again, common sense. You know, our way to getting to Medicare for all, we could just lower Medicare eligibility to 55, allowing people to have it as an option to buy into. Even companies can use that as an option. And what that's going to do is not only giving folks like you lower costs, but it also, for those folks who are left in private pools, by pulling older folks out, it's going to actually make those healthier pools and drive down the costs. There are many common sense things we can do on the glide path to our goal of health care for everyone. And the most important thing is to relieve the financial burden 
on too many families that are hurting in the most expensive system on the planet Earth that fails to produce the kind of outcomes that this nation deserves for all of its citizens. Okay, so if you don't understand why that answer is problematic, it's okay. I'm going to walk you through it because it's understandable for somebody who's not a policy wonk and doesn't live eat, sleep, and breathe this stuff to listen there and go, I don't know, I didn't hear anything wrong. He said he's for Medicare for all, and so what's the big deal? What do you, how can you criticize that? Well, the answer is very simple. So what's happening is the Democratic establishment is fully aware that the energy is on the left flank of the party. The energy is with the populist left, the anti-corruption progressives, the real hardcore base. And since that's the case, they know, all right, well, last time we, it was attempted with Hillary to basically placate those people and say, we have you anyway, now we're going to run to the right and try to get moderates. And so they picked Tim Kaine for VP, and her rhetoric was cringeworthy, and she alienated her own base. And so they know that that failed. So now corporatists are getting more clever. You see, like, Kamala and Kirsten Gillibrand are... Uh, using the rhetoric of Medicare for all, and they're using the rhetoric of no corporate PAC money. Um, now, there are loopholes, though. When they say that, they don't mean, like, I, I'm not going to accept big money. They mean, no, literally just corporate PACs. I am going to accept big money through big money bundling dinners, which is almost as corrupt as just through corporate PACs. So there's, there's loopholes, and there's weasel words. Now, Cory Booker was honest there, and in his honesty, he showed you what he would do when push comes to shove. So first of all, notice he says, well, yeah, I'm for Medicare for all, but we have to show a pathway to get there. Okay, but what does that mean? Well, he goes on to explain. Well, we could start with, you know, lowering the Medicare eligibility age to 55. That's a good idea. We can start with, uh, you know, he basically says trying a public option. So there are a plethora of Democratic bills on health care that have been proposed. There's Medicare for All, there's Medicare for America, there's Medicare for All like, Plus or something, Medicare for All Expanded. There's all these different ones, and bottom line is this. Every single one, except for the Bernie one and the Pramila Jayapal one, there's a handful that are like this is the real deal. But all the other ones are bullshit half measures concocted in a back room with the input of for-profit health insurance companies and big pharma. And what they're trying to do is gaslight the left. And this reminds me of when um, there was a lot of, of energy behind the idea of getting money out of politics and the base was getting a lot uh, you know, stronger with that rhetoric. So what happened? Instead of trying to quell the movement towards a constitutional amendment to really get big money out of politics, what they did is the, the Democrats stepped up and said, we're going to uh, propose overturning Citizens United. Now, that sounds good, right? That's actually not the end-all, be-all, though. That's an attempt to gaslight the left because we were already corrupt before Citizens United. Citizens United shot a dead horse, man. You got to go all the way back to Buckley versus Baleo and, and um, First uh, Bank of Boston versus Bilotti to really see when money started equaling free speech. And it, it didn't start with Citizens United. So when corporate Democrats said, we're against Citizens United, we're going to overturn it. 
they're gaslighting you because what they're saying is, I'm in favor of the corruption, but just, you know, have some limits on it, some caps, and also give some more transparency. It's like what Hillary used to say, we need to get the dark, unaccountable money out of politics. Sounds good, right? Well, why did she add the words dark and unaccountable out of it? Why'd you add those two words? You could just say, let's get money out of politics. Let's get private money out of politics, do clean elections with public financing. She didn't say that, though. She said dark, unaccountable money out of politics. Why add dark and unaccountable? Because what that means is, I just want more transparency. I want to keep the corruption, but just so, so you know who's buying the politicians, let's have transparency laws. That's all she meant. When they say, let's overturn Citizens United, all they mean is let's have a few more caps here and there, but still keep the root of the problem, which is corruption. So now the new gaslighting trick when it comes to Medicare for All is, and you'll see Elizabeth Warren do this too, and I like Elizabeth Warren, but she's dead wrong on this issue, and she's either naive or she's trying to play you. I think in her case it's more naive. But she does this whole shtick of like, well, you know, what we have to understand is the real evil on this issue is the Republicans. They're so bad. And the Democrats all agree to the core of it, which is get everybody covered in this country. And so we have a whole bunch of different ideas to get to that conclusion. And some people support a public option. Some people support lowering the Medicare age. Some people support increasing the, the Medicaid cap or, or starting uh, to allow people into Medicaid or Medicare from when they're younger. Some it's the bottom up. Sometimes it's the top down. Sometimes it's the opt in. But we're all working towards the same thing. That is not true, Liz. You're not all working towards the same thing. Because the corporate Democrat would do a plan like, okay, let's have the Medicare, Medicare eligibility go to fi age 55. They'd do that, and then they'd go, done. There, we got our health care reform. Shut the fuck up. 55 years uh, and up, now you can get into Medicare, which is better than nothing, but you're still leaving millions of people out to dry. You're still going to have millions of people uninsured. You're still going to have unaffordable premiums and deductibles, and um, there are still going to be, the root problem is still there, which is the for-profit health insurance companies are destroying the system, because all they care about is profit. So when Cory Booker starts out by saying, oh yeah, Medicare for all, that's the ultimate goal, but, uh-oh, what's the but? We, we need a pathway to get there, and what's that pathway? Well, we could do lower Medicare eligibility to 55, or try a public option. No, 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 because what happens if you do that? First of all, you're letting the right know. I'm going to concede up front. I'm cool with just doing that. You want to just do lower Medicare to 55? So you're going to concede up front, but furthermore, you're going to waste all your political capital yet again doing a half measure. So they fundamentally get this issue wrong. What you have to do is go hard in the other direction. You've got to do what Bernie does, which is overreach. Ask for too much. So, you know, the best thing you can do really is say, here's what I'm in favor of an NHS-style system. Why? That's the UK-style system. That's public funding of public institutions. So, yeah, the Republicans fearmonger about government-run health care. Damn right it's government-run health care, and it's going to be better, and we have the evidence, we have the proof, because the UK already does it, and they kick our ass in every conceivable way. That's our position. We're not budging. So that should be the starting position. And then, you know, you should get all the Democrats on that page. If you can't, fine, you make some trade-offs behind the scenes, and here's the trade-off you make. Uh, the Blue Dog Democrats say they won't support this bill because it's a government takeover health care and they don't think that they'll be reelected in their district. So, number one, I'll tell them, I'll fight you if you don't vote for it. Like, I'll go campaign against you if you're president of the United States. I'll campaign against you, and I'll make sure that you get primary, and I'll make sure you lose because you need to vote for this, and the polls show 70% of Americans are for it. So shut the fuck up and fall in line. That's the first thing you do. But the second thing you do is, fine, I'll be reasonable. You want to make a trade-off? Let's make a trade-off. 
we're going to do a Medicare for all system, but it's going to be public funding of private entities. So it's not going to be the NHS style system. It's going to be more the French style system or the Canadian style system where you still have private providers, but it's publicly funded. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to do that. This is how you get it done. This is how you get Medicare for all done. You're going to get nothing done if you say, well, the ultimate goal is Medicare for all, but I can't wait to maybe just have a pathway and say only 55 and up for Medicare and then maybe just a public option. Listen to me. Listen to me, Corey. As you say this, as you fucking try to play politics and tap dance around it, guess what? People are dying. They are dying. 45,000 people die every year because they don't have access to basic health care. It's anywhere from 32 to 45, depending on the year. That's insane. That's a scandal. That should never happen in this country, ever, ever. And it's happening right now. And you're not treating it like the scandal it is. You're treating it like, well, we have a buffet of options, and we all agree on eventually getting to the main goal. No. You need to go out there and make a moral case for the right perspective and the right policy on this, which is Medicare for all. You need to be unapologetic. You need to be a swashbuckling leftist who takes no prisoners, but you're just not that. And even when people chipped away on your bullshit, you're still ultimately at, you know, ultimately the goal is Medicare for all, but maybe we should be in a pathway in 55. And <laughs> Final point, he said in there, well, there's other things we need to do too. Like we got to go after big pharma and have them, you know, lower the cost of the prescription drugs. Dude, you're Cory Booker. The most famous moment you had in the past two or three years was when you decided you were going to vote against reimportation of pharmaceutical drugs from Canada, which would have lowered the cost massively. It was a Bernie Sanders amendment. And then when you were caught, you lied. You came out and said, well, you know, the reason why I don't support it is because there's no regulation. We have to, the drug's got to be safe. FDA's got to regulate it. That's why I was against this. Yeah, that's it. Canada has stricter regulations than we do. Are you sure the drugs coming in from Canada? Are you serious? You think, oh, the tainted drugs from Canada are a fucking scourge on this country. It's our drugs anyway. We ship them there, <laughs> and they get them way cheaper. And, of course, they're safe. They have stricter uh, safety regulations than we do. So what are you talking about? It's a dodge. It was a dodge. It was this is okay. Progressive, shut the fuck up. Get off my back. Yes. I'm the number one recipient of pharma money, but no, it didn't influence my vote on that issue. Yes, it did. And then afterwards, you panicked, and you flipped, and you went to the right side of the issue, not for moral reasons, but because you wanted to save your ass politically, because we all knew you wanted to run for president, and you had to clean up your record before you ran for president, because it was too obvious you were a corrupt asshole. And that's where we are. So take your half measures, take your woo-woo about the pathway, and shove it, because... This is a radical time in this country's history. And if you're not acknowledging that, then you're delusional. And it's time for a transformational presidency, not a milk toast centrist, which is exactly what you are. Okay. We're done with Cory Booker, guys. Everybody breathe. Everybody breathe. Now we're going to go to Sean Hannity. Put some big seltzer real quick. So Sean Hannity decided to explain to a caller 
the beef he has with socialism, this ought to be good. We've had it so beautiful in how the latest generation has not suffered as much as some of our forefathers did, and that happened to because I'm an old guy. You know, so that I will tell you this. I, I always say, every time I want to whine in life or complain in life, and I don't let my kids get away with that either. Um, when I, because they had it so much harder. What, you're, what you went through is so much harder. But in the end, it defines you. Like, if you take away people's struggles in life, and that's what I don't like about socialism, because then you're, you're literally robbing them of the opportunity to dig down deep within themselves and pull out stuff that they never thought was possible or even knew existed within them. There's two important points to make in response to this. First of all, nobody, nobody is trying to take away all incentive in your respective lives. Nobody's trying to do that. Certainly nobody in the American political landscape. Nobody. Social democracy, which is what the so-called left-wing fringe is advocating for, Social democracy is effectively about unrigging the system and really giving people equal opportunity. So we have something that actually more accurately represents a meritocracy. That's basically what the left-wing fringe in this country is advocating for. Hey, let's actually give people a shot. Let's do that. Let's unrig the system so we don't have one family of moocher babies the Walton family, six of them having more wealth than almost half the country combined. That's insane. They didn't earn that. They didn't earn that, Sean. They didn't earn that. And if you're so concerned with taking away incentive, why does that not apply to the, to the, uh, you know, the people born into the lucky sperm club at the top who inherit all their family's wealth? You don't even support the estate tax. Shouldn't you? Shouldn't you? But according to this rant, you should. Because, oh, I don't want to take away everybody's incentive, and you got to have some struggle in life. So, you know, the estate tax, yeah, it's, uh, we got to bring that back. That's not what he says. But, again, the real left movement in this country, the predominant left movement, there are some people who are further left, of course, they exist, but the predominant left-wing movement is about trying to unrig the system and trying to give people an equal shot. And in order to do that, the bare minimums, the basics have to be met. That's the whole point. You know, you don't have an equal shot if you go bankrupt because you needed surgery on your spleen. Okay? So that, but that's one example. Now, the second point to make in response to this is, Sean, which is it? I thought you said that socialism is going to make everybody poor and they'll struggle too much. But now what you're saying is socialism will, quote, take away people's struggle in life. Which is it? Does socialism make people struggle too much? Because everybody's poor and everybody's miserable and this system doesn't work. And so it's nothing but endless struggle, which is terrible. Or is it what you just said right here, which is socialism will, quote, take away people's struggle in life. So which is it? Socialism makes it so that we're all rich and comfy and it takes away all of our struggles? (laughs) Or socialism makes it so that people struggle too much and everybody's poor and everybody's miserable and you can't Like, which is it? See, this is the point, guys. This is the point. This guy's a charlatan. This guy's a fool. This guy is a fucking 
talking point machine who's totally unaware of his contradiction. And, and listen, it depends. Whatever, some, you'll tune in on a Wednesday and he'll be saying socialism makes everybody poor and it's a terrible system. And you just heard it on his radio show, tune in the next day, and he's like, uh, oh, yeah, it uh, makes people struggle too much. So it's not, it's not about evidence. It's not about data. It's not about what really happens. It's just about I'm Sean Hannity. I have defined everything that's left as bad, everything that's right as good. I'm going to work backwards from that conclusion. Even if I contradict myself on a daily basis, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. And you in the audience, you're just going to listen to me and like me because I represent the thing that you think you're supposed to like, which is Mr. America. Here I am with my square draw. Not so square anymore. But when he was younger, it was. I'm Mr. America, an older white man with a square jaw. Is there an eagle behind me in an American flag? Yes, I represent Americana. Don't you love it? You should. He's a fraud. He's a fraud. Um, and anybody who really watched his show with a critical eye, you would have been able to notice it from early on. He's not even one of the more convincing, you know, commentators on the right. There's nothing about him that's, it's just all doctrinaire, rah-rah Republicans, they're right about everything, Democrats are wrong about everything. It's not even an, an attempt to be intellectually honest. And this is just such a good example of it right here. He doesn't, and, and you know, I have zero respect for people who are engaged in political discourse. And all the years he's been involved in politics, and he literally couldn't tell you what the differences are on the left between the different factions of the left. He couldn't tell you. He couldn't tell you. He wouldn't know, you know, a corporate Democrat from an actual leftist Democrat. He wouldn't know that. He wouldn't know the other distinctions further left, where some people are genuinely in favor of democratic socialism. Some people are in favor of social democracy. Um, some people want to democratize the workplace. Some people don't want to go about it through that avenue, but they want to go about it through a more statist avenue. He doesn't like... Very, very, very basic things, if you're a political commentator, things that any of the left-wing commentators would know if you talk to them about. Sean Hannity, who's been a political commentator since, since I was fucking 10 years old, 1996. No, I was even younger. 1996, I was eight. He's been doing political commentary since I was eight, and he doesn't even know the basics. He doesn't even know, like, he wouldn't be able to say, like, okay, objectively, what is Bernie Sanders? He'll just say a socialist, and then he'll, he'll also, depending on his mood, he might say communist. And he wouldn't, know, he wouldn't know. He wouldn't know the difference between social democracy and fucking communism. He wouldn't know. He wouldn't know. So no respect for anybody like that. It shows you how big of a hack he is, and it's kind of embarrassing if you like him and watch him. But thankfully, there's, like, no millennials who like him and watch him. Sean Hannity's got the, like, 75-year-old, 85-year-old, angry, white man, Republican demographic, down. But everybody else sees him for what he is, which is a giant fraud. Okay. Now let's talk about a controversy about the DNC. So some of the usual partisan suspects are up to no good again. This is in Mediaite. Journalist Yashar Ali 
calls out NBC Politics editor. She tried to intimidate me on behalf of the DNC. Wow. In a lengthy Twitter thread, journalist Yashar Ali uh, accused NBC News managing editor of politics, Daphna Linzer, of trying to, quote, bully him into delaying the publication of a story on the dates of the first Democratic primary debates in Miami. Quote, yesterday I received a call from Daphna Linzer, who serves as managing editor of NBC and MSNBC Politics. Ali, a contributor for HuffPost and New York Magazine, tweeted Friday, Daphna's conduct during the call was highly inappropriate and unethical. So, what was the purpose of her call? She called me to bully me on behalf of the DNC, he alleged in a lengthy 25-part Twitter thread. So, I went through the whole thing. We're not going to go through it all here because it's pretty much already summed up for you. But, basically, the NBC and MSNBC managing editor is, like, overtly, quite literally, working for the DNC. Um, and this just, and we already know the DNC is pretty openly working against the left. The whole point of the DNC is to like gaslight the left uh, flank of the party, which is the actual people, and um, funnel all of that energy into corporatist candidates and centrist candidates. And so now, the reason why this story is important is it verifies something that we've said. And when you mention this, people go, well, metaphorically maybe, but not literally. But no, it turns out it's a literal. When we say MSNBC is just the propaganda arm of the Democratic establishment, we now know that's literal. The managing editor, the managing editor was asking for favors for the DNC. Hey, do this for me. Well, no, it's not not for our news organization, for the DNC, I need you to do this, this, and this. Are you kidding me? Now, again, don't get it twisted. I don't want anybody to, to miss the forest through the trees here. It is 100% the case that Fox News is an arm of the RNC, 100%. The ties between Fox News and the RNC are just as clear, in my estimation, as the ties between uh, the DNC and MSNBC, 100%. But this goes to show you something, and it's that Noam Chomsky was correct. (laughs) Noam Chomsky, in manufacturing consent and in countless um, interviews and speeches since, he said that we have this thing called the Overton window, which is the spectrum of ideas and debates that are considered reasonable. And what corporate media does is it masterfully limits that spectrum of debate. So, you know, the furthest right you go is Steve King, is, you know, name Louis Gohmert, Donald Trump to some, <laughs> to some extent, or Mitch McConnell. It's like this right fringe of the Republican Party is considered part of the discussion, and it, you can engage. And that, that's a real ideology that exists, and this is as far right as you go. Now, how far left do you go? Well, since MSNBC represents the Democratic establishment, not the people, not the actual left base, not the Bernie Sanders Democrats, the furthest left you go that's considered acceptable in mainstream discourse in corporate media is Nancy Pelosi. 
when I said that, you probably had the aha moment, right? The, the light bulb goes on over your head. Oh, shit, that's true. Because what happened? If you remember, when Nancy Pelosi was going to be speaker again and we were fighting against it, they laughed at us. They literally laughed at us. Like, <laughs> Nancy Pelosi, you're saying Nancy Pelosi isn't left-wing enough? Because <laughs> they've been told for the longest time she's a flaming lefty and she's the left fringe, and you can't go any further left than that. But now you know why that is. Because MSNBC is just a DNC propaganda arm, and according to the establishment Democrats, that's like the, she's, she's it. She's the representative of the left flank of the party. Bernie is off the spectrum. AOC is off the spectrum. Justice Democrats are off the spectrum. No positive coverage for them ever, even when they do exactly what the people want. Nancy Pelosi is the left fringe, the, the representative of what the good Democrats are for is Hillary Clinton-style Democrats, and then again, on the Republican side, you got Louis Gohmert and Steve King. So notice the spectrum of debate, the spectrum of thoughts that are allowed is only in that narrow establishment spectrum, and this is how they control debate, the debate in the country, and this is how somebody like me is viewed as, whoa. You are, whoa, what are you doing? You are way outside the, the reasonable discourse and dialogue, and so you are effectively disenfranchised, and that's the way it should be. That's how they look at it. And the good news is they're facing a revolt. They're facing a revolt. And basically we're elbowing our way into the room. When I say we, I don't mean me. I mean... Um, I mean, you guys, I mean, the left flank of the party is asserting itself because the left flank of the party is the actual people, where you have 70% of Americans who want Medicare for all, for example, 58% want to raise taxes on the rich, 93% want universal background checks on gun purchases, um, only 17% still want to be in Afghanistan, the list goes on and on of left-wing policies, 80% want to raise the minimum wage, so what's happening is, they're trying to control the discourse, and they've done it for so long, but now they're failing. And now everybody kind of sees them for what they are in the same way that everybody looks at Fox News like the hack organization that they are, rank partisan Republican propaganda arm. MSNBC is that for the corporate Democrats. And in the same way that the right has now struggled to keep everybody to fall in line, like they wanted them to fall, fall in line and vote for Jeb Bush. Okay, fine, fall in line. You don't like Jeb? Fine, vote for Marco. All right, shit, fine. May, uh, we'll take Ted Cruz, we'll take Ted Cruz. And then they couldn't keep him in line, and they ended up getting Trump. By the same token, MSNBC is trying to keep people, oh, no, 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 Kamala. Do Kamala? Let's go Kamala. Let's go Kamala. Oh, she forgot fucking, all right, Beto. Beto? Let's go Beto. I'll push Beto. All right, booty judge. You like booty judge? <laughs> Who doesn't like judging booties? Come on, uh, him. He's great. He's great, right? Good luck with that, because now you have an entire separate apparatus that's fighting back against your bullshit. That's us. That's new media. New media is the voice of regular, rank-and-file, average Joe people. And in this case, people who lean left. So you can't hold us down anymore. Now we have ways to skirt around and get to the people anyway and tell them the truth and tell them what our views are. And that's why this show does well, is because people are sick and tired of the nonsense being fed to them on MSNBC as if it represents, like, like as if they're real lefties. No, they're corporatists. They're centrists. They're, they're representatives of the Democratic Party. And now, yet again, I'll repeat myself, it's literal. It's proven. That's what you are. 
your hacks. The managing editor of MSNBC and NBC is doing favors for the DNC. Sounds like she's literally working for the DNC. Should be a giant scandal. Noam Chomsky was right. They're trying to manufacture consent. The left fringe is considered the corporate Democrats. And um, now on, hopefully it won't work because everybody knows what it is, and they're seeking alternative voices, and that's where we step in. Okay. All right, let me now Let me do one more then we'll take our final break. So, NBC News and The Wall Street Journal commissioned a new poll and they released it and it's on the Mueller issue. And um it has some interesting findings. Take a look. They say 40% say information from the Mueller report does not clear Trump. 23% say it does, or excuse me, 29% say it does. But a third and close to half of independents say they're not sure. So you can see the specific numbers there laid out for you. The number of people who say this does not clear Donald Trump of wrongdoing, 40% for the entire country. 67% of Democrats, 35% of Independents, and 11% of Republicans. And then you have um, clears Donald Trump, 29% of the entire country, 6% of Democrats, 19% of Independents, and 64% of Republicans, and then not sure, 31% of the entire country, 27% of Democrats, 45% of Independents, 25% of Republicans. So, got to be honest with you guys, this is a pretty colossal and abysmal failure of the media. It really is. It really is. Now, yet again, I want to be clear. I think Donald Trump is a career criminal. He's massively corrupt. He did violate the Emoluments Clause of the Constitution, so technically there are grounds to impeach. Whether or not you should is a separate question, but there's definitely grounds to do it. And I think that Donald Trump will eventually, when he's no longer president, he will be indicted on various financial crimes. um, And it will come about through the Southern District of New York, where they're already investigating a bunch of different financial crimes that he's involved in. So he is a criminal, let me be clear. But for the Mueller report, what do we know for sure? The bar summary says the following, and I'll get to the skepticism on the bar summary in a second, but it says the following. There are no more indictments coming. There is no evidence of collusion, and there is no recommendation of impeachment. Now, should the Mueller report still be released? Yes. Yes, 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 yes. I want to read every part of that Mueller report. And I'm sure, I'm 100% sure that there's going to be a bunch of shit in the Mueller report where where we're all like, whoa, that's crazy that that happened. And that is sketchy as a motherfucker. But the fact remains, you cannot, legally speaking, 
there's going to be no more indictments, so they couldn't get him from a legal perspective. No more indictments, no recommendation of impeachment, and um, no evidence of collusion. So that you can't get around those things. Now, to the skepticism on Barr's summary, which is now a thing that's really pervasive, if Barr said something that wasn't an accurate representation of what was in the Mueller report, Mueller or somebody on his team 100% would have corrected it by now. Why do I say that? Because this happened in the past when the media horrendously botched a story on Russiagate, and they did that a bunch of times. But when it was so egregious and it was such a big story, Mueller actually came out and said, this is not true. This story is not true. We have no evidence of this. Stop running this story. He came out and corrected the narrative. So we're supposed to believe that Barr totally misstated the findings of the Mueller report and Mueller just sat there? That didn't happen. And honestly, you're getting into like delusional conspiracy fantasy land if you're still pushing that narrative. So please stop for anybody who's pushing that narrative. But here's the bottom line, man. The media is not really reporting this for what it is. If they are reporting it for what it is, then they would basically be like, okay, yeah, it's time to move on from this. It's time to move on from this. Should we talk about his corruption? Yes. Should we talk about how we might eventually get his comeuppance and, and in the Southern District of New York, he'll be indicted? Yes. We can talk about all that stuff. We can talk about all the corruption, all the terrible policies, and we can more effectively and adequately resist. But to say that the Mueller report doesn't clear Trump, according to the summary from Barr, which Mueller has not corrected, which means it's accurate, yes, it does. So... Let's wrap it up, man. Let's wrap it up, but a lot of people can't let go. And it's honestly embarrassing to see it. We covered Morning Joe couldn't let it go. Uh, Rachel Maddow still can't let it go. And it really is. The most poignant thing I've ever fucking said is I called this liberal Benghazi, and I'm right. It's liberal Benghazi. And this, I mean, this proves it more than anything. And now the entire country is still, I mean, again, only 40% says it does not clear Trump of wrongdoing. Okay. Only 29% say it clears Donald Trump. Well, if there's no more indictments coming and there's no recommendation of impeachment, what the fuck do you want to call it? What do you want to call that? Now, if you care more about your feelings, then fine. Say it doesn't clear them, but there will be no further action. But these polls are really terrible, and it shows you how bad the news media is. They really are bad, man, because this is not a question of opinion anymore. It's a question of empirical fact. What's going to happen? And what we've been told is, no more indictments, no evidence of collusion, no recommendation of impeachment. So, come on, media's got to do a better job and people got to digest it. I know they were so, they put so many eggs in this basket that it's hard to get past it, but no, now you have to. Now you have to. So please, I take no joy in saying like, okay, that's dead, now let's go, let's go, like lecturing people and telling them like, seriously, let's, let's move on here. But what the fuck else am I supposed to do? The media is pushing a bogus narrative. Too many people are believing it. And it's holding the country back from effectively resisting. And every time we spend on this, gives him more and more of a political win. That's a fact. That's, he's going to rub it in everybody's faces. He's gonna, they're going to take all the old Russiagate tweets that all these fucking corporate journalist hacks did. And they're going to rub them in everybody's face in the next election. And they're going to say, see, this proves the fake news. This proves the media is fake news. And they're going to run with that narrative, and they're going to have a lot of ammo because of a lot of idiots who overreached. So let's stop doing that.
Okay. Let's take a break. When we come back, we have another scary story along with the Saudi Arabia nuke story. Then we'll get to Booty Judge, and we will make fun of Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon, who might be giving bad advice on purpose. Stay right there. We'll be right back.
All right, let's do it. I still got many stories for you, including ones that will um, make you wish we weren't ruled by toddlers in adult bodies. All right, let's go. So I have an incredibly scary story to talk to you about. Um, Unfortunately, again, I know I say this so much, but I say it because it's true. There's like, there's no discussion of this, especially because it flies in the face of the dominant narrative. Now say it with me. What's the narrative on Russia? Trump is Putin's puppet. That's the narrative. Well, take a look at what's happening now. Tensions between the United States and Russia over Venezuela are threatening to boil over. The White House on Friday warned Russia, along with other countries supporting Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro, against sending military forces and equipment to the crisis-stricken nation. Washington, which supports opposition party leader Juan Guaido, would view the move as a direct threat to security in the region, according to National Security Advisor John Bolton. Quote, we strongly caution actors external to the Western Hemisphere against deploying military assets to Venezuela or elsewhere in the hemisphere with the intent of establishing or expanding military operations, Bolton said. We will consider such provocative actions as a direct threat to internal peace and security in the region. We will continue to defend and protect the interests of the United States and those of our partners in the Western Hemisphere, he said. Bolton's declaration is the second such warning this week, after Moscow on March 23rd sent military specialists to the South American nation. Multiple media outlets reported that two Russian planes with military advisors and as many as 100 troops landed in Venezuela. So we are approaching Cuban Missile Crisis level territory here. I wish I was exaggerating. I wish it was hyperbole. It is not. That is true. That's what's happening. So I find it hilarious how, see, this is the problem when you're an arrogant empire and you violate international law willy-nilly and you think you're above the law, is Bolton is lecturing Russia about sending aid to Maduro's government and sending um, military aid to Maduro's government, but... That is exactly, and he's saying, our hemisphere, it's our hemisphere, how could you? That's literally exactly what the Trump administration did with rebels in Ukraine fighting the Russian government. And by the way, many of them with neo-Nazi ties. So what would Russia's response be? They'd be like, you want to make a deal? Let's make a deal. You stop arming the, the... you know, rebels who are fighting us in our hemisphere and we'll stop arming our uh, allies in your hemisphere. But see, there is no peace and there is no cooperation and that's a problem and it's especially a problem because the entire media dialogue in the U.S. wants Donald Trump to prove he's not Putin's puppet and the only way to do that is to keep escalating with Vladimir Putin in these various conflicts. And I just saw before I came on air today, Fareed Zakaria did a deranged, delusional rant about how Trump has never stood up to Vladimir Putin. That's not true at all. There's a NATO buildup on Russia's border. We're arming Ukrainian rebels who are fighting Russia, a move that's so provocative and such an escalation of tensions that Barack Obama refused to do it. 
because he said, this is crazy. We're escalating with another nuclear power. There's U.S. warships in the Black Sea. Donald Trump has repeatedly told Germany, you need to ax the oil deal you have with Russia and instead do an oil deal with us, which would, of course, massively undermine Vladimir Putin and what he wants. In Venezuela, again, they're trying to, in a thousand different ways, overthrow Maduro, but somehow, Fareed Zakaria is saying, you, sir, are not doing the opposite of what Putin wants, when that's all he's been doing. He's fucking, we're permanently occupying Syria. That's not an exaggeration. That's exactly what we're doing. That's the opposite of what Putin wants. And Fareed Zakaria says, sir, you must stand up to this man. What more do you want him to do? You want him to bomb him directly? You want the U.S. to attack Russia? Is that what you want? What do you want? I don't know what you want. What do you, you tell me. What do you want? But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much evidence. Do you have any idea? Every time I brought up the litany of policies that I just brought up like I did right now about how Trump is being massively anti-Russia, they don't have a coherent response. They just brush it aside. That's it. They just, uh... I'm going to pretend I didn't hear what you just laid out for me in a crystal clear way because it counteracts the narrative that I've been force-fed for the past two years. Well, that's embarrassing if that's what you do. Beyond embarrassing if that's what you do. I want... Here, ready? Everybody sit down, take a deep breath, and, and listen closely. This is going to be controversial in today's media climate, even though it shouldn't be. It should be considered common fucking sense. I want Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin to sit down and de-escalate. That's what I want. I don't want to be on the brink of some sort of a disaster because now Putin is militarily backing the Venezuelan government and Bolton saying, bitch, you better stop that or else. And we are militarily backing Ukrainian rebels. I want to de-escalate from this situation. I want to not arm the Ukrainian rebels and I want Vladimir Putin not to arm the Venezuelan government. I want to de-escalate from all of these tensions. And that's how the Democrats should be resisting. God damn it. God damn it. You want to resist? This is how you resist. You say, what are we doing in Venezuela? What are we doing? Yeah, 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 whatever. Maduro, bad. Exactly. Like you say about every fucking official state baddie government who you want us to topple. You build up the propaganda, talk about how they're a unique evil and they need, our, they need us to intervene. Whatever. I'll give you that. He's bad. He's bad. And then... There is no end then. There's a million bad leaders. We support the fucking Saudi government who's committing a genocide right now. They kill people for witchcraft and sorcery, bitch. They're as bad as it gets. Are we talking about toppling them? We shouldn't be. We shouldn't be talking about toppling anybody unless they're a direct threat to us. And Maduro is not about to attack Toledo, Ohio. So the Democrats should be resisting by saying, stop. There should be no attempt to overthrow another government that did not attack us and does not plan on attacking us. Stop. This is how the Democrats should resist, but no. Instead, they'll sit there and they won't say anything as John Bolton threatens a nuclear power. That's what they'll do. They'll <laughs> I still think you're under that guy's thumb, even though you're actively threatening, threatening him right now and he's arming somebody in our hemisphere. Everything is so stupid. Nobody follows the facts. And it's absolutely devastating. And I fear for our future because of everything that I'm seeing unfolding in front of us right now.
All right, now let's make fun of the booty judge. The judger of the booty. So somebody pointed out an odd comment from Mayor Pete Booty Judge to me the other day. Um, this is from a Vice News piece. This is, I think it's a couple weeks old, but of course uh, Mayor Pete is now running for president. And in this Vice interview, he's asked a very incisive question from this journalist. And his response is frankly one of the most embarrassing things I may have ever heard in politics. Watch. So, it's a big field. There is a chance you might not win. What impact? That was very diplomatic. Oh, shit. Hold on. I got a better clip. Here we go. See, I went all the way for you. I have to say, what will you do for us? Iowans want guarantees. They want to grill you on policy positions. I listened to you talk today. Yeah. On the one hand, you definitely speak very progressively, but you don't have like a lot of super specific policy ideas. Yeah. Part of where the left and the center left have gone wrong is we've been so policy-led that we haven't been as philosophical. We like to think of ourselves as the intellectual ones, but the truth is the right has done a better job in my lifetime of connecting up its philosophy and its values to its politics. Right now, I think we need to articulate the values, lay out our philosophical commitments, and then develop policies off of that. And I'm working very hard not to put the cart before the horse. Is there time for that? You know, they want the list. They want to know exactly what you're going to do. I think it can actually be a little bit dishonest to think you have it all figured out on day one. Look, I think we're all, anybody in this race or conversation is going to be a hell of a lot more specific and policy-oriented than, say, the current president. Um, but I don't think we ought to have that all kind of locked in on day one. Counterpoint, yes, you should. Yes, you should. You should have a, a comprehensive policy agenda laying out everything that you want to do for the country in detail. That was terrible. What he, everything he said there was terrible and, I think, dead wrong. So he said, with the right, what they've done so masterfully is they've, you know, put their philosophy front and center, and they've not gotten mired in the policy details. Anytime I turn on a, a Donald Trump rally, it's nonstop, build the wall, build the wall, build the wall, cut taxes, cut taxes, cut taxes, repeal Obamacare, repeal Obamacare, repeal Obamacare. Now, we despise their policies, rightfully so. The overwhelming majority of the American people despise those policies, too. But what's he doing when he, when he hammers away on those policies? He's throwing red meat to his base and keeping his base, which is rule number one of politics is don't abandon your base. It's simply not true that, oh, the right, the right has been more philosophical in their approach. No, they haven't. No, all they do is throw red meat to their base. And yes, it's way more often than not policy-oriented, even though they're bad policies. So you're just wrong about what the right is doing. And then second of all, he said, well, the left and center left. I mean, we've been too policy-led and not philosophical enough. Again, that's the exact opposite of the truth. What, what was Bill Clinton's big thing? Was he too policy-oriented? No. Bill Clinton was fucking, you know, masterful, wordsmith, sophist. Well, it depends on what the meaning of is. is. 
What about Obama? Was he super policy-oriented? No. He was an amazing speaker who used a lot of flowery language, and people liked him. That's what it is. Um, now, in terms of today, Democrats never, certainly establishment Democrats, never talk about policy, ever, ever. And I'll tell you why they don't do it. Instead, they use vague platitudes and cliches, and they use, they allude to nice concepts that nobody could disagree with, like equality and justice and liberty. And they do that because it's a way to make you think they're fighting for you when they're not fighting for you. If you come out on the record hard, I'm for Medicare for all, I'm going to do everything I can to get it, and then you don't get it, what happens? It's easy to run the clip of you saying, hey, I'm for this, and then you don't get it, and then you're a failure. But if all they have is you talking about, I believe now is the time to unite the country under the banner of liberty and justice and equal rights for all. If all they have is you using flowery language and platitudes, well, then you never get nailed down. You never get pinned down on anything. And they're able to use this as a cover for actual substance in helping people's lives. Everything I've seen from establishment Democrats is the opposite of what he's saying. They're not policy-oriented. They're vague on purpose to then get away with not really fighting for the people on the policies that matter. And so I could not this, – this clip alone makes him drop in my estimation. And I honestly may even put, like, Kirsten Jellobrand ahead of him now. Because at least Jellobrand is like, yeah, I'm for Medicare for all. Whether or not she'll actually do it is a separate question, but at least we're getting her on the record. <laughs> Booty Judge is now like, bro, let's not talk about the details, bro. Back up off me, bro. I don't even care about the policies and stuff. I, me? Who, me, bro? I care about philosophy and stuff. Oh, do you? Well, how fucking smart you are. I mean, that's what he's doing here. Come on. That's what he's doing. Like... Me, I'm I'm the representative of the, the young people, and, you know, like, we're smart. So we care about, like, philosophy and whatnot. And no big deal or anything, but, you know, I'm, I'm all intellectual and stuff, bro. Dude, stop. Just stop. If you're not coming out, like, the last thing he said was the thing I disagreed with the most. He's like, well, we don't want to box ourselves in by doing all these fun... Okay, then fuck off. When I'm voting for you, what do you want me to vote for in terms of voting for you? Like, what do you want me to vote for? Your smile? Your smooth talking? Is that what you want? You want me to vote for your fucking aura? Is that what you want? Way to insult our intelligence. Holy shit. God damn it, man. Fucking booty judges. Canceled. What the fuck? The only thing I would even consider voting for is somebody with detailed policies where I can go through them. And you know what? Maybe, just maybe, the candidate I agree with the most if I go through all of their detailed policies with a fine-tooth comb, maybe I only agree with 88.5% of what they say. But 88.5% is way better than 72% or whatever the other candidates might be. But I'll tell you one thing for damn sure. I'm not going to give a second look to anybody who's telling me up front I'm not going to be super policy-oriented. That's the whole point of who I'm voting for and what I'm voting for them based on. What are you going to do for us? It's a different era, man. Stop it. Stop with your 1990s bullshit. This is a different era in politics. The era is anti-corruption, pro-populist, and 
policy-oriented. What are you going to do for us? What are you going to do? And if you don't do it, you know what that means? You fail. That's what it means. That's what it means. If you don't do at least some of the things you're saying, I want to do this, then you failed. But he would rather just, bro, elect me. What am I going to do? I think we're too policy-oriented. I'm just going to... I'm all about philosophy and stuff. So why the fuck should we vote for you? Why should we vote for you? I'd rather, should, instead, let's go vote for a fucking, you know, let's go vote for Plato or Socrates or, or Hume. Are you kidding me? Or, or any fucking philosopher you can come up with, Kierkegaard, whatever. It, I, it's all about what are you going to do? So ironically, as he says, I don't want to put the cart before the horse. That's exactly what you're doing. You're putting the cart before the horse. Because when you tell me specifically what you're for in terms of policy, then I can ascertain your values from that. If you tell me, I'm for Medicare for all, I'm for free college, I'm for a living wage, I'm for ending the wars, then I know, okay, this guy has a genuine commitment to do what's right for the people and to give people a decent, fair shot at a good life. That's what I know. But if you just come out, and this is what he supports, if you just come out and say, I'm for giving people an equal and fair shot at a good life, well, what does that mean? What does that entail? Do you simply mean by that, I'm going to do a couple targeted tax credits, you know, and I'm going to sl- roll back the wars 10%, but still keep us in most of them? Because in my estimation, that's what I think giving people a decent shot at a good life is. Well, then I say, fuck off. So the details are the only thing that matters. And then I could determine what your actual values are and what your philosophy is. If you just tell me what your philosophy is, all you have to do is say, I'm for good things and against bad things. <laughs> that's all you have to say. Oh, wow. Then he's, I guess he's a good guy. That's his philosophy. No, the details are all that matters. Jesus fucking. I have to do this segment. The year's 2019. I have to do a segment where I'm telling a Democratic candidate for president the policies matter. He might be the judger of booties. I am the judger of him. And it ain't good. Okay, now we go to Steve Bannon. So sloppy Steve Bannon is back in the spotlight. He's in the news again, and uh, he's saying silly things. Now, before I give you the specifics on this, Steve Bannon is not always wrong in terms of political strategy. He's not. In fact, he was one of the voices behind the scenes that was on the side of let Trump be Trump and let him fight back. It was Steve Bannon and Corey Lewandowski who came up with a lot of the really smart, sly strategies. Like, for example, when, um, when Trump was caught on tape saying, I grab him by the pussy, I don't even wait. And you had all of corporate media was convinced he was basically going to drop out before the debate that night. There was like a debate either that night or the night after. And they were convinced of it. They're like, he's done. He's going to drop out. It's over. This is crazy. Because in corporate media, that salacious sex stuff is the end all be all. Whereas to people, no. I mean, when Bill Clinton got blown in the White House, his approval rating literally went up. didn't go down. But if you listen to the media, it's like, oh, the world's ending. Ah." Okay, so he's the one who came up with the idea, him and Lewandowski, of, no, let's invite a bunch of Bill Clinton's accusers and let's do a press conference with them right before the debate. 
So when you're asked about what you said in the debate, all you have to do is say, listen, I'm not proud of it, but words are just words. I didn't do anything. Actions are actions. Bill Clinton did a lot of terrible stuff. And then what happened? Took the narrative from 100% anti-Trump to he made it a wash. So that actually is political genius and knowing that you always have to counter by going on the offense. So from a strategic standpoint, Steve Bannon is not dumb. We massively disagree with his philosophy, and I think he's a virulent bigot. And I think if he's being honest with you, he'd say that. <laughs> but um, as far as strategy goes, he, he ain't bad. Now, having said that, let's look at what th- was in the news yesterday. Steve Bannon predicts Harris-Beto ticket has the best shot at beating Trump. Former White House chief strategist Steve Bannon on Friday claimed a Kamala Harris-Beto O'Rourke ticket has the best shot against President Trump in the 2020 elections. But he also contended that the president will likely win re-election. Quote, I think the best they're going to have, and I don't think these people will defeat him, I think, it's a com- I think a combination of Kamala Harris for president and Beto O'Rourke for VP is a way to mobilize their base and give it the best shot, Bannon said during an interview on CNBC's Squawk Box. Okay, where do I begin with this? First of all, no, that is not a mobilization of the Democratic base. The Democratic base is the Bernie people. That's the Democratic base. That's the left-wing home. That's like the default, like, here's the actual people who ain't going anywhere who are the real lefties. So for you to say Beto O'Rourke and Kamala Harris, two milquetoast centrists, represent the base. No, they don't represent any ba- the base of anything. They represent centrist corporatism, which is why in the polls right this second, they're floundering. Which leads to my conspiracy theory point, and I admit I'm making this up, but I think it might be true. I think he might be playing a game here. The Citations Needed podcast um, pointed this out, and it was a brilliant thing. Everybody can go check it out if you haven't yet. It's called The Inexplicable Republican Best Friend where you see it all the time from Joe Scarborough, but now you're seeing it from Steve Bannon, among others. And what they do is, it's like they pretend to give good faith advice to Democrats. But it's like, dude, you're a Republican. Like, why should we think you're giving us sound advice on how to defeat you? It sounds like he's giving us shitty advice to do the second part of what he predicted, which is Trump will likely win if it's against Kamala or Beto, or a combination of the two. That's what it sounds like. The inexplicable Republican best friend is always like, listen, listen, in this segment, I'm going to tell you how I'm looking out for you. And the way I'm looking out for you is like this. You need to pick two really shitty people to run against us. And by the way, you should agree more with us. That should be your philosophy is like Democrats should be more like Republicans. That's my idea, bro. Well, you have a little thing I like to call a conflict of interest now, don't you? I mean, if I start giving advice to Ted Cruz, as to how to be better, everybody would laugh me out of the room because they'd be like, you're on the other side. He is a dyed-in-the-wool far-right-wing person. You're not like that at all. Why would we take your advice seriously for him? By the same token, Bannon trying to help Democrats in a presidential race, it sounds like he's purposely giving the worst advice possible, which is Kamala Urbeto, which is fundamentally would manifest as an anti-populist campaign, which would then help Trump because all he'd have to do is go back to his old tricks of fake populism. So it might literally be the case that Steve Bannon is giving bad advice on purpose. Now, there is one other person who surprisingly got it right. 
we haven't brought this up yet, but this was maybe a month ago or so. There was an article about how Ann Coulter said, if it's Bernie versus Trump, Bernie's going to destroy Trump. And if I'm not mistaken, her logic was very similar to stuff I've said in the past, which is Bernie Sanders takes away everything about Donald Trump that got him over the edge. So in other words, the perception that Donald Trump was anti-corruption and anti-establishment and pro-worker. Now, he's not those things, let's be clear. But when he went to Michigan and Ohio, and he was all throughout the Rust Belt, hammering away on TPP, hammering away on NAFTA, saying, Hillary's the candidate that outsourced your jobs. Bill, outsource your jobs. we got to fight back against this. I'm going to keep your job here. He had the perception of being anti-establishment, anti-corruption, and pro-worker, pro-populist. And what would Bernie do? Takes away all of those perceived advantages of Trump. Because now you have a real dude who's anti-corruption, a real dude who's pro-worker, a real dude who's populist. And you also don't have the downside. This is not what Coulter says. This is what I'm saying. You also don't have the downside of the rank bigotry. Now, a lot of people who voted for Trump supported him because of the bigotry. That's true. Those people exist. But then there's also a lot of people who overlooked his bigotry and voted for him. And I think that in the case of the Rust Belt in particular, a lot of those old factory towns that were destroyed by outsourcing, they were like, I'll overlook the shittiness about his character and I'll overlook the bigotry but because he says he's going to get our jobs back. So I'll go for him for that reason. So when you got a guy like Bernie who people trust more to bring the jobs back, Donald Trump's perceived advantage is gone. And it doesn't matter how many times he tries to say that Bernie Sanders is crazy Bernie, and it doesn't matter how many times they try to fearmonger about the Green New Deal Oh, they want to ban cows because they fart. They want to ban airplanes. Oh, that's not true. And you're making it so easy to counter-argue against you because you're only talking in your little Fox News bubble. You're not appealing to the American people. So I'm telling you, I think she's right. Bernie versus Trump in a general. See, that's the thing. It's not the hard part, in my opinion, for Bernie is not the general. Once he gets to the general, I think it's pretty easy. The hard part for Bernie is the primary. Got a lot of candidates, going to have a lot of misdirection uh, by the media, a lot of shitty coverage in the media, and he's got to really go to the grassroots and run the right kind of campaign in order to win. So the hard part for Bernie is the primary. The easy part is the general. And I think Steve Bannon might know that, and he might be giving bad advice on purpose. Because who the hell on planet Earth can objectively look at Beto and Kamala, who are floundering in the polls, and go, yeah, they're Trump's biggest threat. Okay. All right. Um, let's do one more, and then we'll call it a day. So Twitter is struggling with the issue of how to deal with Donald Trump being an insane person. And they've come to a hilarious conclusion. Look at this. Vijaya Gaddy, Twitter's head of legal policy and, and trust and safety at a Washington Post event on Wednesday, said the company might start annotating offensive tweets from public figures with a message about why they remain up. Twitter has long held that some posts from public figures should remain up 
because they are, quote, newsworthy, even when they violate Twitter guidelines. Quote, one of the things we're working really closely on with our product and engineering folks is, how can we label that? Gaddy said during the post event, how can we put some context around it so people are aware that the content is actually a violation of our rules and it is serving a particular purpose in remaining on the platform? Gaddy was responding to a question about whether Trump is allowed to say whatever he wants on Twitter. Quote, when we leave that, that content on the platform, there's no context around that and it just lives on Twitter and people can see it and they just assume that is the type of content or behavior that's allowed by our rules, Gaddy said. So when they were coming up with the Twitter rules, there was a really infuriating um, caveat that was added to them that many astute political commentators pointed out and said, whoa, what the fuck is going on here? And what I'm talking about is they would say, you know, no direct threats of violence or things of that nature. But then they said, except for governments, which is like, what the fuck are you talking about? So direct threats of violence are bad unless it's a head of state who's threatening violence, presumably on like thousands, if not millions of people, in which case that's totally cool. <laughs> it's like, it's like the rules of war where they're like, all right, you know what? You want to do traditional missiles to blow up people? Fine, bro. But whoa, whoa, whoa. Chemical missiles, biological weapons. That's crazy, dog. <laughs> like, wait, what? So you could kill, presumably you can kill 2,000 people with conventional armament, and it's like, that's fine. But if you kill three people with a biological weapon, ah, you've crossed the line. But in one situation, 2,000 people died. In one situation, three people died. So it's just, it's weird. It's weird is what it is. Nobody can do direct threats of violence unless you're a head of state, in which case we welcome you doing that. (laughs) What the fuck? It's just so stupid. Um, now in the case of Trump, I think they're struggling because there were times where Trump quite literally, actually, I don't know if it's quite literally, but he seemingly violated Trump, uh, violated, uh, Twitter's terms of service when he said, like, I think particularly with North Korea, where he said, we'll rain down fire and fury. No, he didn't say that. He said something like that. Like, you know, we'll come after you or whatever. And it was p- pretty clearly a threat. And it was definitely a destabilizing event and a scary event. Um, and they didn't know how to handle it. Because what are you going to do? Are you going to pull down the president of the United States? I mean, technically, you can make a case he violated it. I'm sure other people would make a case the threat wasn't direct enough to be considered a like literal direct threat of violence. That's up in the air. But the bottom line is they know Trump has flirted on multiple occasions with violating the terms of service and violating the rules, and they don't know how to deal with it. And so they're picking this weird middle ground of like, okay, so if he violates it, then let's put up a fucking warning saying he violated it, but we're going to keep him up. But then, of course, the reasonable reaction to that is, well, what about all the people who violated it and got pulled down immediately? What you're saying is we don't have equal protection under our Twitter rules. You know, that's supposed to be like one of the defining characteristics of rules or laws. is supposed to be that it's equally applied. Once you get rid of that, what you're doing is saying we have like an apartheid-type system. We have a a, a multi-level system where... Like me, because I have a blue check mark, does that mean that I get way more leeway than somebody who doesn't have a blue check mark and they do something? Because that's kind of fucked up. That's kind of fucked up. I'm not saying I don't like my blue check mark. I do. I've become a Twitter elitist to my core. <laughs> but it is fucked up that if maybe, do I get more leeway because I have a blue check compared to somebody who doesn't have a blue check? Because that's just not fair. You know, that's very close to saying like, 
when it comes to the law, like, oh, the people in Washington, D.C. who are in the in-club, if they violate the law, they get away with it. Whereas if you're a regular person working in, you know, wherever, Wisconsin, you're not going to get away with it. That's fucked up. That doesn't make sense. And to codify the not making sense seems like a really weird move. And it seems like they thought this out, but it came to a really bad conclusion. They didn't get enough pushback in the room. I'm often surprised by decisions made by social media giants because it appears like nobody in the room was really dissenting. And it's, uh, yeah, that's a good idea. I don't know. Put a little fucking thing by Trump's thing saying this tweet violates the rules. But And then listen, what happens to people who violated terms of service? Why is it always the death penalty, the Internet death penalty? Like, okay, now you're gone for life. Why is it never, like, a year? You get a year banned from Twitter because of something you did. I, I don't know. And to be fair, I think there are some instances where they do suspend you for a day or whatever. They don't let you tweet for a day, and then you come back. I don't know. It's really complicated. It's really a mess. But I'm not sure this is the right answer, guys. I'm not sure this is the right answer. Um, and I'm also not sure that Twitter's getting it right in other respects because we've counted uh, many examples of prominent lefties getting banned for silly reasons. Um, now, in some cases, they get their thing back. In some cases, they don't. But there's a problem with, and it's not just the left, it's anti-establishment voices on both sides of the political spectrum, even ones on the right that I really disagree with. Um, but they shouldn't be banned, and they are banned. And so it happens to righties, it happens to lefties, it happens on Facebook, it happens on Twitter. And it's really, they, I don't think they were prepared for all of the the fallout and the backlash in certain instances. And since they weren't prepared, now they scramble after the fact and they make a lot of really bad decisions. And I think it would be a lot easier if we just drew some clean lines and we said, like, this should be, an ex social media should be protected under an extension of the First Amendment and it should be regulated as public utilities. So you lean heavily on the side of free speech, but are there issues where if you do certain things, there's punishment? Yes. Like, again, you can't do a direct threat of violence. You can't dock somebody. Um, you can't do what Milo did, which is put a tweet of Leslie Jones pretending it was her, and in that tweet she's calling Jewish people kikes, and it could has the potential to, like, destroy her career because it makes it look like she's an insane, virulent bigot, and he's tweeting it as if it's something she said, and she's like, listen, that's flat-out defamation of character against me. And that's true. That is like the textbook definition of defamation of character. So, like, there are some, there need to be some bare minimum basic rules, but I think you can have those rules enforced by a shadowy group of Twitter elites and owners of the company and owners of social media. It should be a very open and public process, and this should be treated more in accordance with American values and the First Amendment and free speech and free expression. And um, that should be how we deal with it. But... Certainly now, it just looks like Facebook and Twitter and all these social media companies are just scrambling to cover their tracks because, honestly, most of the criticism they get is not in the direction I'm giving it, where I say, hey, you should lean more on the side of free speech. Most of the criticism they get is from the corporate media types where they argue for more censorship and more deplatforming. And they say, well, well, listen, there's a lot of really bad guys who say really bad things, and you want to leave them up, and you're not responsible. You don't think you're responsible when some white nationalist goes and does something terrible well, they were promoting their ideas on your platform, so you need to ban them. Like, this is where most of the pressure on these, these outlets comes from. It comes from a perspective of, no, you're, 
you are not being strict enough. You're not being stringent enough. You're not cracking down enough. You're letting bad ideas proliferate too much. You're letting this become a, a cesspool of bad ideas. That's where a lot of the criticism comes from. So I don't envy the position that they're in because no matter what they do, they're going to get a lot of criticism. But in my opinion, the bottom line remains, you have to be principled on this. You need to be intelligent about it. And certainly what they're doing now is not that. They're just kind of scrambling and slapping together ideas. And this seems like one of those ideas. Like, oh, just label that Trump's tweets when they violate the terms of service that they do that, and that'll be it. So then let's admit it. You're literally saying Trump can't get kicked off the platform. That's what you're saying. I mean, okay. <laughs> uh, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what to make of this. This is not an easy question, and you guys can tell that there's a lot of different levels of analysis that need to go into this. It's really complex, and uh, certainly we're not going to solve it here, but uh, they're not in an enviable position, but I don't think they're doing the best job either way. All right. That'll do it for the show, bitch. All right, guys. I love you all. I'll talk to you soon. Everybody enjoy the rest of your day. I'm out. Peace.